Well, um, my name's Josh, everyone, if there's any visitors, and we're continuing our look at, that'll have to flick, flick back days, that's right at the end, um, we're continuing our look at, um, at the book of Revelation, and three weeks in, in a row now, with, uh, with me doing it, uh, I'm really looking forward to the Advent series, which starts next week, where we've got a few different preachers in. Um, I don't know whose idea this long series on Revelation was, looking at the hardest book of the Bible. Anyway, um, yeah, some silly person. Uh, we, um, I will just see if I can, uh, if we're getting any luck with the slides here. But what we've been uh, doing the last few weeks is, is looking specifically at some... Um, Is it, is it going to work? Okay. Looking at some of the specific words that, that John had. Can you just click in it again? See if that makes a difference. There we go. Okay. Uh, apparently not. Oh, there we go. Now it's working. Great. Thank you for your prayers. Someone was praying hard there against the, uh, the demon of Microsoft. No, no. I made a flippant joke like that in the first one and I've had to repent of, so I'll try, I'll try and screw my brain on. Anyway, uh, John uh, has been speaking words to particular churches in, in Asia Minor. And, um, and so we've been looking at a couple of those and we're going we're, we're to actually sort of fast forward over the remaining five letters or five words to those specific churches, partly just because I think um, we, we don't, we do, as I've joked before, we want to get through this series before Jesus actually returns. And um, there's also a sense in which I think um, we've got some of the skills now to, to, to look at those specific words to specific communities ourselves. Um, and, and there's some recurring themes that have, have come up um, through those, yep, I'll explain in a minute, through those specific words to specific churches. One is, you know, it's hard for Christians in an empire where the emperor wants to be worshipped as a god, uh, where their sort of Jewish communities are rejecting them because they're becoming Christians, um, where they're poor um, and they're having to really persevere through some, some difficult stuff. So if you go and um, in your own time have a look at the, the remaining five words to the remaining five churches. Um, that could be a useful thing to do. What we're going to do now, um, I'm going to talk to you today about a few things. I'm going to talk to you about a game uh, that we may or may not play as families at Christmas time. Does anyone do family like board games or whatnot after the meal? Yep, the Hearns do. Um, so I'm going to talk about that. I'm going to talk about um, watching ads for 8K TVs. I'm going to talk about Back to the Future. And I'm going to talk about the big glass off, um, which is good news for surfers and fisher people. So basically, chapter 4, the first six verses of Revelation. Chapter 4. These four things are going to help us tie it together. So, 
this far, we've been introduced to this figure, which is a kind of freaky picture of Jesus. Um, and Jesus is revealing something to John, who's in exile on the island of Patmos. And he's saying, I want you to deliver a message to seven churches in Asia Minor. Now, you might remember that um, the reason why Jesus looks like this is because John is kind of barreling together some pictures from the Old Testament uh, that are given to us by prophets to say something about Jesus. And um, one of the things that's going on in this image is that he's, he's tying together, he's kind of mashing up a picture of this human figure that Daniel talks about, one like a son of man, and then also some images that Daniel is using for the God of Israel, the Ancient of Days. Um, And we've talked a bit about how uh, this book has the name Apocalypse or Revelation, but actually one of the things that's going on is that John is communicating in a particular genre of biblical literature called apocalyptic literature. And um, here's a definition of apocalyptic literature as uh, I found in my Bible dictionary. I'll just pick the eyeballs out of it quickly. So it says that this is a genre of biblical writing that reveals God's actions and coming judgment in symbolic language. It's characterized by an increased use of symbolism. Now, Hebrew as a language is is very symbolic, very uh, symbol-heavy. and Hebrew culture, Jewish culture, is, is very concerned with symbols and images, but that just gets cranked up when we look at apocalyptic literature. Um, and it has an increased use of heavenly mediators explaining the vision. So you might remember from the first chapter, it actually says, uh, this is a word from Jesus to an angel to John, um, and that's something quite typical of apocalyptic literature, where there's an angel bringing a word, helping to explain what's going on because of the mysterious symbols that are at play. And we have examples throughout Scripture of this kind of literature, um, but we might think of Daniel, as I've mentioned already, or as the, of the book of Revelation, as we're talking about. So John has been doing this thing. He's taken a word from Jesus. Jesus says, give it to these seven churches in Asia Minor. Um, there's a map of those churches and John's basically just been pastoral to this point so we have the scene set he's received a word from Jesus he's delivering it to these seven churches and he's taken a moment to speak to each church separately um, in between chapters two and four and he's really just being pastoral in doing that we see Paul do that in his letters to the churches where he's got a message for them but he has some social skills too so he goes he does things like say says give my regards to this person or I remember this person this person's helped me out a lot I'm praying for this person basically John is doing that he's going I see you've all got specific issues going on I'm speaking into them I'm connecting with you over them and then what happens is John um, begins to sort of Okay, I've taken the time to kind of greet you all individually in your separate communities. Now I'm getting into the stuff that's going to be relative and relevant for all of you. Excuse me, I am just having some, as you might have picked up, some little challenges here with my tech. So here we are, 
reading chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. After this I looked, and there before me was a door, standing open in heaven, and the voice I first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once, John says, I was in the Spirit. Does that mean that he was sort of taken up into a heavenly realm or does it mean that he was seeing from a spiritual perspective where he was? We're not sure, but he says, I was taken up into the spirit and therefore there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne, there were 24 other thrones And seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also, in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, as clear as crystal. So you might have picked up that one of the things that we're trying to achieve out of this Revelation series is not just to, to understand the book, but right at the outset, uh, it talks about hearing these words. And I, and I mentioned that that's, that's important. We're not reading these words in our studies by ourselves. That was never the intention of Scripture and particularly these letters. They were to be heard and heard in community. And so we're spending some time kind of tooling up so that we can hear this book together. And some of the tools that we've kind of put in our toolkit to journey through Revelation, keeping front and centre that John is a Jew, right? As, as I um, have sometimes said, this is the, the, the cultural group where just to turn 12, you had to remember the first five books of the Bible, have them memorised in entirety. Scripture is a big deal, for the Jews. And if we struggle to understand an element of Scripture, um, particularly, say, the New Testament, it makes sense for us to go back to Israel's Scriptures uh, because the explanation is probably there. If there's a mysterious number, like the many mysterious numbers we encounter in the book of Revelation, the Old Testament is probably going to help us to understand that, understanding that John's a Jew writing to Jews. John's a Jew and he's paying his Jews. I've used this little uh, uh, sort of image of the rapper paying his Jews. And did you notice that was a rap? John's a Jew and he's paying his Jews? No, you guys hate it. Don't worry about it. It was hilarious when I was practicing in front of the mirror. Um, John's a Jew. He's paying his Jews. He's doing that particularly when it comes to this genre stuff where he's saying, I'm standing in a line of prophets and I'm prophesying in this way. I'm prophesying in the genre of apocalypse. So there's certain conventions, certain motifs, certain things that this kind of rapper, I mean this kind of prophet does when they're doing apocalyptic. We've also talked about the them, us, me thing. To understand Revelation well, we're going to run into trouble if we start with me. Uh, because it was initially written to communities in the first century. But we've also got to be mindful of the fact that, you know, if we start with me, we can begin to read things into the text that would have very little um, sort of relevancy for most of the church through most of history. So I've made some jokes across along the way about the Black Hawk helicopter. Uh, last week I talked about how that's just going to go by the wayside as, as, as a 
as a helpful thing to read Revelation. It meant nothing in the 15th century in France to Christians then. It's very soon going to mean nothing to us. It's just an example of how Christians do what we do as humans. We make it all about us. Well, as we read Revelation, we've got to be careful not to do that. And then I've spoken a bit about how we've got to also run things through the kind of the filter of dogma, doctrine and opinion. There's plenty of space for opinions um, in Revelation, um, but we've got to make sure that we're certain of what we can be certain of together. So, let's get on with it. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice that I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this, So that voice that sounds like a trumpet we might remember from the first chapter. And again, this is uh, John paying his dues, he's going into apocalyptic mode and he's saying something about Jesus. This is Jesus speaking. At once I was in the spirit, John says, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Ruby and, rain, and a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. So I've mentioned we don't exactly know what John means when he says, I was in the Spirit. But we can have some insight into the fact that he's having an extraordinary experience here. He's about to see some things that in our flesh, in a material sense, we don't normally see. There is something different going on about the kind of experience that he's going to have. Um, he's seeing uh, something and he's going to have to sort of interpret it in that kind of apocalyptic sense that we're talking about. After this, I looked and there before me was a door standing open in heaven and the voice that I had first heard speaking like a trumpet said, come up here. What? I'm going backwards all of a sudden. Um, there you go. So this is where... Uh, the game that I was mentioning. The Christmas Day game comes into it. And you're going to have to help me with this game. I'm going to need a little bit of interaction. Um, it's a game that is like charades a little bit, but instead of like acting things out that everyone else has to guess, you've got to get the person or the people, you've got to kind of communicate to them a word that you're thinking about without actually saying that word. Does anyone know a game like this? Sorry? Taboo, it's a bit like that. Has anyone played a game where you can't say the actual word and you're going to help me out because you got it in the first one? Articulate. And it was a bit of a joke. Again, it was hilarious when I rehearsed it in the mirror that I, I scored first points because I got Yoli to say articulate without actually saying articulate. So, yeah, it was brilliant. People were rolling in the aisles. Um, <laughs> I'm rethinking my transition to a, uh, to a career as a stand-up comedian. But anyway, uh, in the game Articulate, you've got to get people to say the word car without actually saying the word car. So you'd say it's like a metal thing with four wheels on it and um, if they guess, then you win. Basically what's happening here, and this is a little tool for us to put in our toolkit, is a game of Articulate is happening. So... John is a Jew, remember? That's one of our tools. And you might remember that the God of the Jews uh, is the one who says, you shall not make a graven image of me. 
The God of the Jews says, I am who I am. When Moses says, who should I say sends me? The God of the Jews is spoken about in many places in Scripture with that word there, which we would say or pronounce Yahweh, but which in fact is not even a word. It's just four letters to represent his name because his name is so holy because he is so other that it's futile to try and capture who he is. Um, and in fact, it's prohibited in the Jewish religion to, to paint a picture of him, even to say his name. And so against that background, we have uh, a Jewish prophet having a vision of God, but not able to articulate it clearly. And we see that, don't we? Because he says, there is one who sat and had the appearance of Jasper and Ruby. If you read uh, the apocalyptic prophets like Ezekiel, when they come to explain what God looks like, you'll notice that there's a lot of similes and metaphors. They'll say things like, he looked like this and there was this that was like that. John is basically doing the same thing. He's saying, there was one, I'm not going to tell you too much about what he looked like because I can't, maybe it's even too difficult to put into words. But he had an appearance of jasper and ruby. So I don't know if you know what jasper and ruby look like. Jasper is a red rock and ruby uh, tends to be a red rock as well. That's jasper on the left and ruby on the right. And I put uh, pictures of both those stones up there where they're not cut in the same way that you might be familiar with them on an expensive ring. And that's partly because in John's time, they wouldn't have had the technology to cut gemstones in, you know, with the precision that we, that we can cut them today. And so John's basically comparing uh, God uh, to these two rocks, which for my money is slightly underwhelming, actually. You're never going to believe I had a vision of the eternal God who created everything that you know, and he kind of looked like some stones that you and I might walk over he goes a little further in depth he says there was an around the throne of this one who had an appearance of these gemstones there there's a there's a rainbow that's kind of green in color like like an emerald uh, scholars tell us that you know he's probably evoking the picture of Noah and 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 the rainbow is a symbol of uh, the promise that God will never destroy the earth again and its creatures um, but it's maybe a little bit of an underwhelming description of God and to explain exactly what's going on here I want to talk to you about watching adverts for 8k televisions now um, I, I don't know how many 8k TVs are actually in people's homes in Australia, not many. They're super expensive um, and, and I think they're fairly new technology. But basically, uh, you're probably familiar with 4K. I think the new phones and the new, the new TVs are what they call 4K technology. What that means is across the, 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 the length of this screen are 8,000 pixels, basically. So 8,000 dots that make up the picture that you're watching on TV. And I've told you recently about the fact that 
Sharon and I haven't really had a TV for most of our married life. We, we recently did get one. But up until that point, when we're watching TV, we're either watching it on her computer monitor or we might be watching it on an old smartphone. And it's a funny thing that when you're watching your crummy TV, there's often ads for much better TVs that come on. I don't know. I don't know. It's Satan at work, maybe. Uh, you should go and spend $20,000 on an 8K TV. That sounds like the work of the devil. But anyway, the, the trick that the ad, advertisers have to deal with, the challenge that companies like Samsung or LG, whoever it is, have to face when they're trying to sell you a $20,000 8K TV is that you do not have an 8K TV to watch that ad on. There's a chance that some, some of us have a, have a 4K TV, which means uh, it's got 4,000 pixels across the length of it, the base of it. But here's the thing. Every one of those pixels represents information which makes the image richer, right? So there are so many more pixels on an 8K TV than there will be on your 4K TV, or if you're like we were recently, watching it on YouTube, on your phone, it's probably 1080. So, do you, do you get what I'm saying? There's like just too much information. An 8K TV is so rich, the image is so rich, that it only works on an 8K TV because it's shooting that much information at the monitor, basically. And so ad companies have to try and find a way of communicating with you how amazing an 8K TV is, even when you don't have an 8K TV. And so they'll do things like um, just flash, I mean, they'll do that. They'll just put like a colourful picture <laughs> on the screen. They might pump up the bass on the ad as a race car zooms past and there might be people in the ad in their living room who fall back off their couches because the effect of 8,000 pixels across the bottom of your TV is just so staggering uh, that it, it's like you're sitting at the racetrack. This is the same challenge that John faces he is in the spirit he's seeing a vision of the throne room of God and then he's got to come back and communicate the uncommunicatable to his audience and while we might look at these stones and go yeah so what I mean we're talking about an iron age people um, living you know uh, in in the ancient near east in, in the Mediterranean these were the shiniest things that they'd ever seen in their whole life. You know, these were the most precious things. They didn't have 8K TVs. The most beautiful, extraordinary looking thing that they had ever seen was one of these. I, I've, I've often thought about how in the Psalms they talk about honey, like it's just out of this world. And we can be a bit like, well, honey, I, I mix it in my tea every morning. Big deal. But... um. I don't know if you've ever had honey on the comb, how that sort of takes it up to another level, right? Like, you're like, oh, there's something pretty special. I mean, this is extraordinarily sweet for something that you could find out in nature. Imagine if you, and maybe you've done something like the Daniel Days fast or something like that, where you're not allowed to flavour your food at all, it just has to be raw vegetables or whatever it is, lentils. You come off four weeks of not tasting any sugar at all and you taste honeycomb. It's like, it, it's an experience, isn't it? It takes it to the next level. Similarly, 
these gemstones were just the most impressive visual thing that the biblical authors could reach for at the time. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and they had crowns of gold on their head. Um, You know, there's a good chance that if you or I in the 21st century had the revelation that John had, we might not reach for the gemstone language, right? I mean, if what I'm saying is true, I think it makes sense that those gemstones were just the most beautiful things that John could use to explain the 8K vision that he had in 4K language. If Sharon uh, had John's revelation, she might say to me, it was like being at a U2 concert, the, the lighting and the sound, the impact of it, it was just the most overwhelming sort of sensory experience that I could have. But even then, it went beyond that. The trouble when we take some of this stuff, uh, you know, when we're not mindful of that, is we begin to do really bad art. <laughs> we, begin to get, we begin to go, well, I guess God looks like red stones. And there's more to it than that. Um, not that this is bad art. I painted that one last night. Just as I was, um, uh, so the 24 elders on 24 thrones. This is one of those points where it's useful to think about our dogma, our doctrine and our opinion. There's a mix of opinions on what these 24 thrones represent and the 24 elders around the gemstone-like God. Um, Basically, no established church, no, no denomination, mainstream denomination or movement makes this stuff into doctrine and the ones who do make it into doctrine and I'm not going to spell have a think about have a think about the religious movements that make stuff like the tw- the, the 24 and the 144 into doctrine that they tend to be cults right it's a it's a useful way of kind of controlling people if you can nail all this stuff down and kind of go well are you a part of the 24 The most common consensus on what's going on here with the 24 um, is that 12 of them are the sons of Jacob, representing the 12 tribes of Israel, and 12 of them are the 12 apostles. Um, And, you know, there's a logic to that, that these 24 elders are are representatives of the entire people of God, the the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. I'm not, I'm not sure because I think it does start to inch us towards um, stuff that I just I, I don't know that it's, we can pin down particularly. But there's a sense to that for me, that there would be 12 elders from Israel, 12 elders from the church. As I was thinking about this, and you'll see the connection immediately, um, I thought about Marty McFly and Back to the Future. Why I thought about Marty McFly is um, I was thinking about John looking into the throne room of God and he's having this 8K, I mean it's more than 8K, experience that he's got to try and translate into a 4K reality for a 4K audience or a 1080 audience. And I'm thinking, 
okay, who are those 24? Most of the, most of the experts seem to say 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles. And then I'm like, is John looking at himself? Because he was one of the apostles, right? John was one of the disciples. So is John on earth looking into the throne room of God and going, hey, I'm there. Which would be an, that, would, that would be a good moment. I'd, I'd make a doctrine out of that if I saw myself. <laughs> Hang on a second, am I missing an opportunity here? My preaching could be so much more powerful if I was one of the 24. I've got to think about that before we pick up Revelation in the new year. Anyway, so John's looking into the throne room. He's seeing into the throne room, possibly, I don't know, seeing himself there. Um, Why well, I think that's a useful thought, even if... I'm not going to make doctrine about it, is it's evidence of John potentially doing something different with time, right? He's seeing time in a bit of a different way. If he's seeing the eternal throne room of God, of course it would make sense that time on earth goes past, but something different is happening in the throne room of God. If he's seeing into the eternal throne room of God, is he seeing the end of history? Is he seeing outside of time somehow? Is it a combination of both of those things? I'm not really sure, but I am sure that when we read Revelation, we've got to be mindful that it's a little bit Marty McFly, it's a little bit back to the future, that time in the book of Revelation isn't working in the same way that you and I experience time. heard a fascinating discussion this week about when the first clock was invented, how people had a general, you know, they understood days of the week, months of the year, etc. But how did you agree on whether it was 11.30pm uh, when you were supposed to meet for brunch before there was a clock? Sherilyn, you're always late. Well, who are you to say? Uh, the sun, my, sundial said, <laughs> my sundial says I'm on time. Gordon Fee, probably the most famous uh, Pentecostal Bible expert, says this, but rather than try to resolve of this section that we've just looked at. But rather than try to resolve this complex use of images, one must remember that in the apocalyptic genre, such things can happen regularly and without need of resolution. That's, thanks. Thanks, John. Um, so he's kind of saying time just, that there's often symbolic things got going on in Revelation that we might really want to pin down, but it doesn't necessarily work like that. In any case, Gordon Fee goes on, the difficulties tend to be of our own making related to our desire or our want to resolve things in some kind of ordinary time frame as such. The apocalyptic genre allows for a more fluid use of images. That's what makes it so darn hard, this book. But there it is, a person much smarter than me making the same point. So I'm coming towards the end here. You'll, you may be pleased to hear. We're going to get to this last couple of verses. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. We've talked about those seven lamps and the seven spirits of God. You can go back and listen on the, uh, the website, on the podcast, if you want to catch up on that. Again, we're not doing doctrine out of that stuff. It's tricky. Also, in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, as clear as crystal. As I was researching uh, for, for this message, so many of the commentators said the same thing about this line, the sea of glass as clear as crystal. And the thing that they all said 
was that this is quite unique. A sea of glass as clear as crystal. In the scriptures generally, the sea is, uh, is a place you don't want to be. The, the ocean is a symbol of chaos. The, the, the ocean and the sea is a place where the demons and the, and the false gods come up out of. The ocean is the place of the dead. The ocean for a culture that doesn't swim the way that we as 21st century Australians swim is a place where you go to die, basically. You don't want to end up in the ocean. When it's spoken of in scripture, it is about chaos. It is about death. It is about destruction. It is about the forces that, that are kind of beyond human control. But John sees into the throne room of God and he sees the opposite. He sees a calm, clear sea. I don't know if you've ever had one of those magic days when you're at the beach. They happen a lot of the time in spring where it's just a light westerly wind and it's like this. It's like, it's like glass and and instead of waves, it's just lapping and ebbing on the sand. Thinking about this put me in mind of, a, of another Bible passage. It features the same guy. <laughs> and you'll know this story. This is from Mark chapter 4, where Jesus is sleeping in the boat and there's just this frightening storm. And his disciples wake him up and they say, don't you care that we're going to die? And it says that Jesus got up and he just said, be still. And it says the wind and the waves stopped. And his disciples said, who are we in the boat with? Who are we in the boat with? And Jesus says to them, didn't you know I'd have it all in hand? What are you? What are you worried about? This is in so many ways a picture of the world that we're in at the moment, isn't it? We're in, we're in a storm. <laughs> many of us as disciples, myself included, we're freaking out <laughs> at times. There's so much to be in conflict about. There's so much cause for division. There's so much cause for anxiety. I think about, you know, the, the, the epidemic of anxiety that educators are dealing with, young people refusing school. I don't know if there's anyone in your family that can kind of spiral emotionally. We might have one or two. Um, but have you ever done that thing with a child or seen that thing happen? Maybe as a parent, maybe you've looked on, maybe you remember your parent doing this but there's been times with my kids where they're just spiraling <laughs> and they're losing it um, and they and they lose all sort of sense of objective where I actually have to just grab them I have to physically overpower them <laughs> like give them a big bear hug and I have to say things like okay just breathe stop stop talking stop talking just breathe I have to hold them tight and say it's going to be okay it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. 
think what John speaks to us about this morning, as he looks into the throne room of God and he sees the sea, which should be a symbol of every challenge that would come against us, of every stumble that we might take into death, of every fear and anxiety, of everything that we could have division and argument about. Is Jesus just saying, see what happens in the end. See how things are outside of time. Your circumstances will pass. But where God lives, the sea is eternally calm. I'm going to get Daisy to play a song in a minute that we're going to finish with. As we reflect on this song and its words, and it'll be familiar to you because we've played it before, I wonder if you can imagine God the Father just holding you <laughs> in that bear hug. Maybe you, maybe you need it, especially this morning. I think we all need it to a degree. And just saying, where I am, <laughs> this, this, the storm of your life, that same sea is calm. The boat's such a beautiful picture of our life because there's something so vulnerable about being on a boat you know all of us we live lives which we're one diagnosis or one stroke of the pen away from it all falling apart from sinking into the depths but scripture invites us to see ourselves on the same boat as the god of history who has it all in hand and this morning i believe he wants to wrap his arms around you and say it's going to be okay it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Thanks, Daisy. Be still now, child. When you've lost.